This morning, Scripture, 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter, the first seven verses. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as, you, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. The word of God, let us pray. Gracious God, Lord, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you that you have divulged to us the principles of life, the principles of worship, the principles of marriage. Father, we pray that your spirit would speak to our hearts and minds this morning and illuminate these passages to us all, Father. And Lord, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of your spirit and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. To say that the Corinthian church was a mess is an understatement. We've seen so much happen in these first seven chapters of the book of 1 Corinthians. The folks in the church looked and acted just like the folks outside of the church. The believers acted like unbelievers, and we know that this is a problem. Sin was rampant within the church as well as outside of the church. Now, we would expect that outside of the church, but you don't expect that within the church. But unfortunately, it was. We have witnessed through these first seven chapters, we've seen selfishness, we've seen division in all different shapes and forms. But perhaps nothing that we've seen so far exceeds Paul's pushback on sexual sin. And he sees that as most egregious. And we saw it last week, and I think even the week before that. We saw last week that Paul exhorted us to flee from sexual immorality and sexual sin. And we studied that Paul's had a desire for us to take care of our bodies. And those two principles met, that we should take care of our bodies. And why did he say we should take care of our bodies? Because they're not of our own. We don't own them. They were bought with a price. And so as we saw last week, he, he talked about the things we should eat, how we should eat and drink, and also how we should flee from sexual immorality and, and sexual sin. And it was because of this not owning our own bodies that Paul said sexual sin was most concerning and extremely egregious in his eyes. We are to avoid it because our bodies are the very temple of God. He resides within us. And that should be all the more reasons why we should take care of ourselves and not engage in sexual sin as Paul um, exhorted us last week. Then we come to this morning's passage. And there's a lot going into this morning's passage. 
It's like there's a lot going on out there right now. But there's a lot going on in this morning's passage, passage, and there was a lot of issues that were at play in this passage. One of the many problems that the, the folks at the Corinthian church had was they didn't find it necessary to get married. So you had a lot of folks that were shacking up or just living together at the time. And the issues were broad. Still others were married, but they were married and believed that they could better serve God by being celibate. And that's the primary focus of this passage that we're looking at this morning. Men would leave their wives in what they said was in furtherance of their relationship with God, become monks. Women would veil their faces and refuse any type of sexual relations with their husband because they believed they could better serve God by being celibate. So Paul decides that he's going to address these issues in this passage. So we've just kind of flown out of this, or flowed out of this letter being taking care of your bodies and he starts dealing with fleeing from sexual desires and then we get to oh by the way verse one now concerning the matters about which you wrote sort of telling right I mean this was an issue that the Corinthian church was dealing with and they actually wrote to Paul and said hey Paul what about this so he takes this time to address their concerns Now, we don't know what the exact question was they posed, but we can sort of come up with a question from the context and his response to that. The question wasn't really, is it good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman? I think it was more broad than that and a little bit deeper than that as well. This is not a quotation of the question. It's a statement that Paul makes to the Corinthian church. It is a fact, and that's what he's saying here. It is good for a man not to have sexual relationship with a woman and vice versa. So he's making a proclamation here that may leave you scratching your head to some extent. He's saying that it's okay, and in fact, it's good to remain celibate, to not engage in sexual relations with the opposite sex. And we'll come back to that in a minute with respect to exactly what Paul's getting at and why he's saying that that is a good thing. After all, God encourages us to procreate, right? He put us here for that. Or for that being one of the reasons he puts us here and encourages us to do that. But yet we have Paul saying something a little bit different. So we've got to get to the proper context to understand that or understand what Paul's saying. He says, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, But, verse 2, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he just said that celibacy is a good thing, that that should be a goal, and it is good for people to be celibate, but he qualifies that statement. And we see the qualification that he makes with that statement. Because of the temptations that might come to someone who is celibate, then he says, you should be married. A man to his wife and a wife to her husband. 
So if you can, Paul says, remain single. However, if it's going to cause you to engage in any type of sexual sin, then get married by all means. Remaining celibate was incredibly difficult in the Corinthian society because they had a whole lot of temptation going on. It's not unlike our society. Turn on the TV, you're going to see everything sexualized all the time. Very similar to how it was in the Corinthian society. If you can live your life and remain celibate and not fall into sexual immorality or sexual sin, great. But if you can't, then get married. Seems pretty straightforward, doesn't it? Notice Paul's exhortation. And that this is the pinnacle exhortation of this entire passage. Is that he's encouraging everyone to avoid sexual immorality or sexual sin. That should be the utmost goal. So he tells them that in, to, in order to avoid that temptation, in order to avoid following in or falling into sexual sin, then be married. And he continues this theme of protecting from sexual immorality or sexual sin. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So Paul, again, begins with this notion that if you can be celibate, do it. Great. But if it's going to cause you to stumble, if it's going to cause you to sin, then be married. Again, we have the pinnacle here of protecting against sexual sin. And so he basically expands on that with verses 3 and 4. He tells the Corinthians that there's no place for celibacy in the marriage. No place for it. When we marry, we have a mutual obligation to each other. That's what Paul's telling them. We have a mutual obligation to be submissive to each other. Paul says that whenever we marry, we give up our own rights to our bodies. That your body becomes your spouse's body and your spouse's body becomes your body. The husband belongs to the wife and the wife belongs to the husband. Verse 5. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he sets up this passage by, by saying that it's not really your body, it's your spouse's body, and vice versa. And then that's the whole premise behind verse 5. He continues to unfold these Christian principles with respect to marriage and sex. But I think it's important, and I think you guys are all thinking it, that we just pump the brakes here a little bit and try to figure out what the context is. Because, quite frankly, I can see this passage being abused. Can anyone see this passage being abused? Like, all the time, right? I see it can happen and be ripe for abuse. 
If you have a husband that is abusing the wife or vice versa, that's the last thing in the world you're thinking about, right? Last thing in the world you desire is to be intimate with that other person. So you can see where this could be abused. Paul is not saying in those situations you have to submit yourself to the other one. Not at all. Not at all. It's, he's not saying that whenever you are married, you become the sexual slave of your spouse. As I said earlier, there were some who believed that sexual relations was a distraction to their service to God. And this is the proper context for this passage. They believed that they could better serve God by remaining celibate even though they were married. There were situations where, as, as I said, the men would leave the family and become a monk. And a lot of situations where the wives would say, no, they would veil their face. I'm going to remain celibate even though I'm married and even though I may have children. I can better serve God by remaining celibate and not be distracted by that, those types of activities. So the proper context of the situation is where the marital relationship is otherwise fine, that it is only out of a desire to serve God that one of the two parties desired to be celibate. That's the context. Paul says, don't think that whenever you're married, remaining celibate is going to make you more appealable to God. That's not the case whatsoever. In fact, it's the opposite. If you're married, celibacy for the purpose of serving God is not appropriate. It's not proper. Now you might ask, where do you get that from this? And how do you come up with that from this passage? Look at the middle of the verse. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. Why? So that you may devote yourselves to prayer. That passage, which I struggled with, which I wrestled with, is key to understanding the entire context of this. This entire passage that we're looking at, verses 1 through 7, is all about serving God and how to go about shaping our lives so that we can best serve God. Many of the folks in the Corinthian church believed that they could best serve God even though they were married by becoming celibate, by refraining from any sort of sexual activity with their, with their husband or with their wife. Paul says, no, don't do that. If you do it, only do it for a brief period of time and do it so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Again, in the service of God, that's what we're talking about. They do it for a short time, sort of a fasting type mechanism. So I, I think that that particular passage opens up the entire context of the rest of the passage where it makes sense to you. And you can understand it, or at least it did for me, understand it much better. Paul is equating this short period of time with fasting. And you and your partner serving God and doing so during a time of prayer. There may be times in your marriage where things are anything but pleasant. 
And the last thing in the world you want is for the spouse who has treated you wrong or whatever the case may be to open up 1 Corinthians 7, 5 and say, look here, look at what Paul says, you got no choice. And I'm quite certain there has been men that have done that, right? Or they come in from all night carousing and drunk and everything else and the wives want nothing to do with them whatsoever. And they say, well, the Bible says you can't say no to me. That's not the proper context of this passage. It's all about serving God and worshiping God and not making a decision that I'm going to remain celibate because I can better serve God in remaining celibate even though I am married. Paul says, no, you're not to do that. Paul transition or transitions to the goal of meeting each other's needs in the last part of verse 5. So that Satan may not tempt you. You meet each other's needs. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Again, again, fleeing from sexual immorality. That, that is the pinnacle here. And that becomes the premise by, behind Paul's argument in this. We go all the way back to verse 2 when that was the, 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 the premise behind it. And we're still at it here. If you can remain single, Paul says, that is great. And again, we are talking about in our service to God. And it's so important that we understand that. Because if we pull it out of that context, it makes really no sense. If you can remain single and be celibate, great. That is great. In fact, that is best, Paul says. But if remaining single and celibate causes you to sin again, then be married. And if you are married, then don't deprive one another as an attempt to better serve God. Because if we do that, then that can very well lead to sin in the form of temptation. Verse 6, Paul continues and sort of wraps up this small section. Now, as a concession and not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So we see Paul saying now as a concession. I'm telling you this, but it's not a command at all. I don't want you to think that this is a command of God or that I am commanding it in His Spirit. But it is a wish or something, an ideal to be looked upon. I wish that you were all like me, he says. And what does he mean when he says, I wish that you were all like me? He says, I wish that you were all single and celibate. Single and celibate. But in verse 7, he says, that is a gift. Being single and celibate is a gift from God so that you can serve Him. And what does he say about the gift? Not everyone has it. 
Not everyone can do what I'm doing, says Paul. God has given me this ability to be single and celibate as a gift in service to Him. But that certainly isn't for everyone. Each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. Those that don't have the gift, that can't do what Paul says he's doing, then you should be married. Don't try to take or attempt to take the celibacy into the marriage because that will not work and it will only end up in sin. So why does Paul want everyone or wish that everyone was like him? Is marriage and a family and sexual relations, are, are those bad things? Not at all. Not at all. Those are, those are gifts as well. Gifts that God gives us. But Paul's ministry was very unique, right? Paul traveled all around what they viewed as the world then, sharing the gospel. He did not help to provide for a family, to raise children, to watch over a household. He didn't have those obligations or duties. And he's not at all saying those are bad things because that's what makes up the kingdom of God. Those are wonderful things. But he's saying, I am not restricted in my service to God by those things. I am free so to speak, to be able to go wherever at a moment's notice and not have to worry about are my wife and children fed? Are they being taken care of? Are they protected? So that was why it was Paul's desire that everyone be like him is because it makes spreading and sharing the gospel easier. All, only person he had to worry about being fed was himself. The only roof over anyone's head he cared about was his own. So he's saying that's why he wished that they were all like him. And this gets us back to the question that they wrote to Paul about. Because they saw Paul being single and celibate and they wanted to be like Paul. But Paul's saying, whoa, whoa, it is a gift that I've received from God and not everybody receives that gift. Not everybody can do it. In fact, I would venture to say that it is a very unique and small number of people that are able to do that. He could focus 100% of his energy, all of his efforts, on serving God. And I think that churches, perhaps the Catholic Church, I'll throw that out there, They've gotten it wrong with respect to this. They see Paul as an example, right? And they see that Paul was single and celibate. So what does the Catholic Church to do with all their priests and all their nuns? Same thing. If you choose to enter that ministry, then all priests, all cardinals, all popes, all nuns, all sisters, I don't know them all, but all of them must be single and celibate forever what happens it is a very unique unique gift for a very small percentage of people so when a, a priest go in goes into the priesthood he takes that vow of celibacy 
And in his mind at that time, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, he thinks that he can do it. Only to get into it and realize, I can't do this. Because I'm not one of those that have been gifted that's very minutia of all people that have ever lived that can do this. So what do they do? Do they stand up and throw away all the school and everything that they've done? Or do they end up falling into the trap that Paul warns them about? I would say a lot of them, it's the latter, right? And we've seen it play out. Through 2,000 years, sexual sin has almost destroyed the Catholic Church because, by and large, of this principle that if you are going to serve God, you are married to God. Uh, I think a lot of the nuns actually wear wedding bands on their hands to show that they are married to Jesus and that they have taken a vow of celibacy. The problem with that is not many of them can handle what Paul's dealing with here. And I think that's a good thing that the Protestants didn't fall in lockstep with whenever we left the Catholic Church. That we realized that, hey, this single celibacy life is for just a very few people. And if they're able to pull it off, then great. But if you can't, then be married. And oh, by the way, don't be married and then decide, well, I'm going to be celibate and thinking that I can better serve God because you're actually doing the opposite. If you're choosing to be celibate and being married in order to try to better serve God, you're not serving Him. You're not glorifying Him because you're not helping to take care of your partner, of your spouse, given the situation. Sexual scandal has been a pox on the Catholic Church for almost 2,000 years, and I fully believe that this is a big part of it. So as we close what is a little bit of an uncomfortable passage of Scripture, devoting your life to God, there is nothing more admirable. There's nothing more admirable than how Paul devoted his life to God. But that required him to be single and celibate his entire life. And as he said, not many can do it. He wishes everybody could, but not many can pull it off. Instead, for all the others, marriage is the appropriate way to glorify God and devote your life to God. To have a family and not deprive each other of the physical needs that are involved in that relationship. Not to say, well, I believe that sexual relations is a bad thing, and and I think that's part of it too. Sometimes society has so corrupted sexual relations between a man and a wife that you have a tendency to think that it's bad. It's a gift of God. It was God's gift to us as his children. It's perfectly pure and good. It's through our sinfulness that we've corrupted it. It's not God's fault. It's our fault. We've corrupted it. But to glorify God is to give of yourself to your spouse and to your family if you are married. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a difficult passage because it's, it's a little hard to understand, but Lord, we thank you for the leading of your spirit that we can see what Paul was desiring as people desired to spread your gospel message, that you give gifts 
all different sorts and all different kinds. And to some, you, you give the gift of being able to remain single and celibate, to, but to so many more, you don't, and that's fine. But Father, help us to understand what it means to be married, to have a family, and to seek to glorify you and, and follow you in all that we do throughout our lives, Father. And we just pray that Paul's words would be a constant reminder to us to love our spouses, to embrace our spouses, Father, and, and, and just follow you and keep our families precious to each and every one, Father, and that you are glorified through that, that we can do both that we can have a family, that we can be married, and we can still choose to glorify you in all that we do. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand, sing the closing hymn. Yes. Yes. Absolutely.